0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today's episode is all about stranger things. Well a little more specifically about Stranger Things 4, since that's the one that I just watched, but I will be talking more generally about the characters that have come with us through the last four seasons and kind of the relationships that have formed over those seasons and, you know, what we can learn from them. Now, I am going to say up top that this one is pretty trauma heavy in that, one, the show has some scenes of things that are quite traumatizing, but also that I will be discussing trauma and the impacts of it. So, if that's a topic that you've had enough of or you need a break from to take care of yourself, just wanted to let you know at the top. So, like I said, I'm not going to be going through every season of Stranger Things as the series. I'm going to be mostly focusing on the characters as they've developed into season four. If you have not seen season four yet, massive spoilers ahead, of course. I also highly recommend checking out the articles that I will be putting on the sources page for this episode. I thought they were super interesting, especially if you are into like media studies and gender studies. Uh, I'll be using two articles by Millette. One is called Demogorgon's Death Stars Indifference, Masculinity, and Geek Culture in Stranger Things. The other is called Looking Through the Upside Down, Hyper Postmodernism and Transmediality in the Duffer Brothers Stranger Things as well as an article by Driscoll and Greeley called Stranger Things, Boys and Feminism, and an article by Kasasa, Knight, and Mango that was actually just published in 2022 called Trauma Bonding Perspectives from Service Providers and Survivors of Sex Trafficking, a Scoping Review. That's the only one that's not specifically about Stranger Things, um, but I did use it to get a really good definition of trauma bonding and read a little bit more about that, which I will talk about later in the episode. To start off, I gotta I gotta start off talking about Will, and I've been calling him tragic Gay Will because it's tragic. <laughs> Will Will is tragic. If you're familiar with the show, throughout its course, Will was the child who was um, taken by the Demogorgons in season one. He still has a connection to the Upside Down, um, and he in season four is in California with his mom and eleven. They've had to move out of Hawkins after Eleven loses her powers and has to fake her death because she's being accused of like burning down the mall or whatever, whatever weird excuse they came up to justify the end of season three. So, Will is in California with Eleven, and Eleven is dating Mike, who is the person that Will is tragically, secretly in love with. And this entire season is focused on. Will hining after Mike and swishing back and forth between being like explosively angry and being like pensively, horribly sad uh, because Eleven and Mike are still together. And they their relationship is on the rocks for a lot of the season. So we see him really get his hopes up and it's sad. And I have to say, like, personally, I have some trouble with this character arc uh, just because I think that it kind of fits into this Barrier gays and queer baiting tropes, which I'm gonna talk about. Um, and I think that it in the context of Stranger Things being nostalgic with like progressive updates, this is the one thing that I don't think they're able to wrestle with in a progressive way, like gay and queer queer characters in general. It, Stranger Things just doesn't do a good job with representation of anyone who's not heterosexual, in my opinion. There's like two characters main characters that I guess you could say are LGBTQ. One is Will, which he's deeply in the closet. And the other is Robin, who for most of her introduction season was assumed to be a love interest of Steve and then is played as like comedic relief for the fact that he's in love with a gay woman. So there's stuff to be (laughs) uh, desired in Stranger Things LGBTQ representation. Now, Do I think that Stranger Things needs to be a show that has like a ton of queer characters and is pushing the community forward? No, I don't think every show needs to be doing every movement. But I do think that if you're going to make a show and include queer, gay, trans, whatever characters in it, you should do a good job at it Um, because there are so many poor representations of the community that at this point, we're just, we're begging for anything, for any positive or realistic representation. So with that being said, Will, I think that he really represents the barrier gaze trope, which we talked about in the uh, Haunting of Bly Manor episode, which uh, was came out last year, and I did it with my friend Becca, uh, where we talked about like this, there's this trope that really came out in literature in the 19th century, where Characters that had same-sex attraction or were in same-sex romantic relationships often tragically died and couldn't, like, end their story in a relationship with their partner. They would die by the end of their story. And this trope has continued in, like, more modern examples of literature and media, like, movies, TV shows, stuff like that. And I don't think that Will represents a traditional trope of barrier gays in the way we might have seen it in past media, but he does represent this very tragic gay figure. He His origin is that he was the kid that was like kidnapped by the Upside Down. He has suffered through his friend group breaking up or shifting in how they relate to each other. He's kind of the one who's trying to Bring things back to how they were before, even though everyone, including him, has been deeply changed by the events they've gone through. And then he has to, like, uproot his life essentially for the girl that he's in competition with for her boyfriend. Like, he has to change his whole life for Eleven, even though knowing that she is one of the barriers to him being with or Mike ever being with him. And I don't know where Will's story is going to go into season five, we may see him be sacrificed. We may see him, you know, lose Mike and the people that he cares about the most. I don't know. From what I've seen online, it seems like season five is going to be pretty intense. So I don't know <laughs> who's going to die and who's going to make it. But I am pretty sure that we are going to see this kind of storyline continue with Will. That he he's either going to come to a crossroads where he has to tell someone that he's gay or... Uh, he's going to like tragically lose his life or the person that he's in love with. Another kind of side effect of this plotline or character development for Will is that I think he represents, unfortunately, something that is called queer baiting. If you've never heard this term before, it essentially means that the writers of a character are putting in hints at an LGBTQ plus love story so that fans can imagine themselves being represented without that love story ever being confirmed to make the show more palatable to mainstream audiences. A big example of this is Supernatural. If you've ever watched that show, there was a lot, a lot of queer baiting going on where two of the characters, well, several of the main characters who were all men would have like lines and little storylines in the show that hinted at them being attracted to each other or being, I mean, essentially just being attracted to each other or like being in love with each other. That then fans would create like fan fiction and art around this idea that these characters were really in love when the reality was is that the, the characters were not and the main love stories that they had were with women were were in straight relationships. I do think I never watched Supernatural all the way through. I do think at the end there was some sort of acknowledgement of this happening because the show had gone so off the rails. But for a good chunk of time that Supernatural was on the air and was very popular, this was happening, where you have one audience watching it for clues that two characters may be gay, uh, and another audience watching it without picking up on these things, and that is just a way for like writers or producers or wh- whoever you know, the they of media, um, to get more people interested and to keep people watching because the people who the mainstream quote unquote mainstream audience is just going to keep watching for the like show that they're watching. But the audience that they're reaching through this queer baiting is going to keep watching every week to keep picking up more clues. So you're keeping like multiple streams of audiences attuned. I don't think that queerbaiting is good. I know that there have been lots of accusations against Harry Styles and Taylor Swift separately for doing queerbaiting. I'm not going to weigh in on that um, because I think with real people, it's a lot harder to determine if someone is pretending to be gay or is in the closet or exploring their sexuality, right? Like, I think with real people like Harry Styles or Taylor Swift, it's not super appropriate to speculate but i think with characters like will in stranger things um it's pretty clear what's happening right it's like a, it's very much hinted at there is no conversation in the show where will says that he is gay or that he is attracted to mike there are several scenes where It seems like other characters seem to understand what Will is saying, um, but there's no explicit acknowledgement of his identity. And he may not even be gay, right? He may just be attracted to Mike. He may be bisexual. Like, we don't know because no one says it. No one has the conversation and Will doesn't get to, like, be himself. But we do see him suffering. We see him crying. We see him painting a painting specifically for Mike. We see him being disappointed, when Mike only wants to hang out with his girlfriend and not with Will. Like we see all of these little things, even though Mike Will never gets an opportunity to kind of own what's going on with him out loud to another character. So that that's why I, I see it as queer baiting. I don't think it's as egregious as other examples in the media have been, but I do think that it is a type of it and it's important to be able to notice it even when it is so subtle because this is just another example of how... LGBTQ plus people are represented in media and shows us why good representation is important because when we don't have good representation of what different types of people look like and we live in a culture where most of our information comes from media, pop culture, then younger generations or even current generations don't get to absorb good examples or healthy or wholesome examples of People that are like them, right? They only see like negativity or stereotypes. That's just my personal take on on the queer baiting. Another thing that I think is going on is that because this show is set in the 1980s, Will would not have been able to come out as easily. We are, let's see, I think it's an 86, so we are somewhere in the AIDS crisis, which is deeply, deeply impacting gay men specifically, and impacting the LGBTQ community broadly. So culturally, there just wouldn't be a path for acceptance. But I think that because Stranger Things is trying to be nostalgia with a progressive twist, that they do have an important opportunity to show gay characters in this time or lesbian, trans, whatever characters in this time being accepted. Through the same mechanisms that the four main characters are accepted for their, like, nerdiness. The four main characters, so Will, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas, are, like, mega nerds, right? The the whole thing is that they love... Dungeons and Dragons and video games and Ghostbusters, like massive nerds. And they're outcasts, but they find community with each other for different reasons. They're outcasts. Like Lucas is an outcast because he's like a little black boy who doesn't like traditional or stereotypical things, right? He likes video games. Dustin doesn't have front teeth, and he's kind of a doofus, right? Mike and Will, well, Will is a sensitive, very timid boy, and Mike is just, like, gung-ho about nerd stuff. So, like, they're left out of popular culture, like, popular people. But they find community with each other, and this continues through to season four with the Hellfire Club expanding. There being older boys in it that kind of bring them in. They're, even though they are deeply unpopular at school, like, they have a place to fit in. I think that the show could do that with queer characters, could show them coming out or being more explicitly who they are and still finding that acceptance, particularly for male characters. Because we do have Robin, who is uh, a lesbian character, and she hangs out with Steve, who is a popular boy. But they're outside of high school. They've graduated high school. They're not dealing with the same like cultural forces that a high school student deals with. So I just think that there's a, such a huge opportunity to have one of the boys become not become gay, but come out as like gay or bisexual and be accepted and still have a place in the community that they've created for themselves because they're outcasts. Just I guess that's the area of stranger things that does disappoint me is the way that these characters are handled and that just they're just making will suffer for no reason. like I, I hope there's better payoff in season four or season five because season four was rough to watch. It was really rough to watch. <laughs> At least when Will was on screen. So that's my my take on queer baiting and tragic tragic gay Will. Now I do want to spend some time talking about the main villain of Stranger Things season four, who the kids call Vecna, but is also one, like the first child that was experimented on in the same lab where Eleven comes from. Um, and his real name is Henry. So he comes from the same lab, was the first like child with special abilities that Papa or Dr. Brenner was experimenting on. And he kind of got a lot of extra torture, I guess. I mean, all the children in that program got tortured, but he got tortured more so because he was the first and because he was seen as like super extra special by Dr. Brenner. The same thing happened to Eleven when she was in the facility. She was seen as like extra special, which means she got extra attention, which means she got extra torture. So we know from the beginning that Vecna has been severely abused as a child. He's gone through essentially horrible medical experiments. And he, I think, kind of represents what can happen if like trauma goes unprocessed he's like that the most intense version of it because a lot of the characters in stranger things are dealing with unprocessed trauma but vecna i think is like if you were to distill it down to its its worst parts or its most horrible aspects like this is unprocessed trauma now disclaimer if you have unprocessed trauma, it does not make you evil, like Vecna is described as evil because this is a fictional show. I'm not saying in general unprocessed trauma makes someone evil. I am saying, though, that with a lot of heinous things, we can see how a background of trauma impacted the decision to harm other people. It does not justify the decision to harm others. It doesn't make an excuse but it does provide a little bit more insight into things that I've talked about before, like the cycle of abuse. So while all of the a lot of the characters are kind of going through this process of how is trauma from the past impacting them in the present, Vecna, I think, is like, if you had absolutely no, <laughs> no resiliency or buffer factors, like this is just un- unbridled pain against other people because of pain done to you. So in the show, Vecna got sent to the Upside Down after he attempted to kill everyone in the lab, and Eleven, as a child, uses her powers to send him away, and he ends up in the Upside Down, and we learn in Season 4 that he's been behind a lot of the evils that the kids have dealt with through all the seasons. He created the Mind Flayer and has been connected to all of the, like, monsters, And in season four, we finally meet him, and he has become, like, a gross tentacle monster. And he is attempting to open portals between the Upside Down and the regular world so that he can unleash, like, essentially hell on Earth. And he is... Opening these portals by finding people and killing them and using their like energy to open up uh, a portal between the upside down and the real world. One thing that I think is interesting about Vecna and his like storyline is that Eleven is absolutely terrified of becoming him, of doing what was done to her to those around her. So I guess this is unrelated to Vecna, but like something that has come up throughout the series is that Eleven struggles with having a lot of power because of her like telekinesis and stuff and how to use that power effectively without hurting people and when she has hurt people either on accident or in self-defense or when she's just allowed her anger to consume her she gets really upset (laughs) like she takes it really personally and she is so 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 afraid of doing essentially what was done to her to other people And so I think Eleven and Vecna have really been set up as polar opposites of having gone through the same experience and coming out the other side with different perspectives and different moralities. Because I think Vecna comes down to his morality was stunted. The development of his morality was stunted in childhood and Eleven's has continued to grow because of the relationship she's had. Um, So it's just a very clear example of like two people can go through almost exactly the same experience and come out differently, whether you're related or not, right? Like this isn't just about twin studies and sibling studies, like two people who don't know each other can go through the same thing and because of like different things like resiliency factors, demographics, you know, individual inherent genetic differences, all of that stuff, people can come out the other side very different. And so Eleven and Vecna went through almost exactly the same experience because they were both specially favored by Dr. Brenner, uh, but they both have come out with very different, I guess, presentations at the end. In season four, Eleven is really wrestling with this because she, there's a scene where she bashes a girl in the face with a roller skate. She doesn't even have her powers anymore, but she still like cracks this girl in the face pretty bad. And she, I think, has a, a moment of realizing that, she can hurt people without, with or without her powers. That it's not about having the powers, but it is about being able to regulate herself. And that is what is going to prevent her from hurting other people. Vecna can't regulate himself. He is angry and so he takes it out on other people and he can't redirect his anger into any other form than wreaking havoc on the earth. So that's just my little aside. Again, Vecna represents going through pretty intensive trauma and like Wanting to then do what was done to him to other people. I think something about Vecna is interesting is that it it demonstrates that this idea of, like, the people who are traumatized traumatizing others doesn't have to be the exact same action, right? Like, Vecna was tortured with medical experiments. It doesn't mean that he wants to experiment on (laughs) the world with needles. But the idea of, like, seeking power or control over another person in the way that you felt powerless and controlled. That is what gets passed on. It's not a one-for-one one passing on of trauma or passing through the cycle of abuse, but it is about this sense of someone had power over me and now I want to have power over someone else to kind of gain back that sense of powerlessness that I had. And so Vecna is obviously taking to the, to the extreme of seeking to control the entire upside down and the entire world and that's not possible in the real world right because we don't have supernatural powers but it's this idea of he was completely controlled as a child from everything to like his powers when he could eat how he could dress his name all of that was taken away from him and so now he is Trying to claw back as much power as he can by taking over the world and opening up these portals. Vecna's way of killing people is also very unique and about like consumption, I think. His way of killing people, if you haven't seen the show, essentially what he does is he targets children who are in therapy, which is upsetting <laughs> to say the least. He targets children who are like in therapy for something that they regret. So, or or some like mistake that they've made that is haunting them. And then he sends like visions and hallucinations of that thing. He sends them slowly and slowly until they find themselves like in a full-blown hallucination of that event and then he breaks all of their bones and blinds them and then they they die it's super gruesome to the death so like if you intend to watch it just know like it's it's very gruesome um very visceral but it's not just with vecna it's not just about physically torturing them and killing them but it is it is about psychologically and emotionally torturing them with the memories of the bad thing that they've done so of his victims we have chrissy is the first victim and her well hers is weird because it's like she has an eating disorder because her mother was very aggressive about her body image. And so Chrissy is hiding an eating disorder where she appears to be purging food. So I don't know what that... I don't know if that's the bad thing that she's done, but Vecna targets her because of this like relationship with her mother and her, her eating disorder. Fred was targeted because he got into a bad car accident and killed another uh, one of his peers. And then Max is targeted because she blames herself for her brother dying in season three. But each of those victims that he's going after, he's sending them these visions and this psychological torture. So it's it's not just about like physically overpowering someone and killing them, but it's about making them feel the same way that he feels. So Vecna, I would argue, is consumed by his memories of being tortured and the things that have been done to him. And his sense of justice is... That because he feels this pain all the time, when he's going after someone, they should feel the same pain that he is going through before they die. Like that that is an eye for an eye. I think he even says it in the show. Like it's an eye for an eye, his whole worldview. And this is what I'm saying where I say that his morality was stunted in childhood. This is a very, very childish version of morality to say, you hurt me so I get to hurt you back and it evens it out. You've heard the saying an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? Because what happens if this someone comes after your other eye? Then you have no more eyes and they have no more eyes because you've gone after both of their eyes as well. A more developed or more mature sense of morality would include a sense of attempting to understand behavior instead of just punishing or reacting, of attempting to understand behavior and of attempting to understand that there's like flexibility in rules or laws, right? That there is, it's almost like morality has to be like individually decided for each case, right? That we can't just say all X is bad or all Y is bad. And if you do X, Y, then you should be punished in this certain way. That there is extenuating circumstances that there are different uh, values and different understandings of why people engage in behavior. And Vecna is not able to do that. He's not able to imagine why Chrissy would develop the disordered eating that she has. And he's not able to understand why Fred got into the car accident. And, you know, if Fred did cause this person's death, then like what does it mean for justice for that person's death? Does it mean to kill Fred or does it mean for him to, Rehabilitate, right? Vecna is not capable of that because his morality was stunted at at what it would have been as a child. Children are super black and white when it comes to morality, right? Like they get a toy smacked out of their hand, so they go smack the toy out of that kid's hand, right? They're very eye for an eye. And as we develop, and and children are also very like egocentric in their morality, right? They're like things that are done to them are wrong, but things they do to others are fine, right? Like if you have young children. You will probably have heard this of like, mom, dad, he hit me. And then you hear from the other room, well, he hit me first, right? They they have difficulty understanding that what they did to their sibling is exactly the same thing as what their sibling did to them. It, they feel differently about it because it was their behavior. So that, like, very briefly, that's like child childlike morality. But as we grow up, we start to understand that there are other things at play that help us to determine a sense of like justice in the world and some people don't some people don't develop beyond an eye for an eye it's just what happens there has there's like tons of research on this you can read kohlberg's model or Gilbert's model ton, tons of this stuff and so vecna at the core of his behavior is a representation of an adult who has not been able to evolve or adapt his morality or his worldview and so his The way that he acts against the world is very simplistic. It's very A plus B. There's no room for considerations of other factors. I think often villains in movies or TV shows represent this type of morality. I think that's probably a more modern trope too of like, a, you know, a villain with a, a bad or a tragic backstory is then exacting revenge upon the world. And I just, obviously no one out there is Vecna and is like going to take over the world. But I think this is a, a moment to illustrate like the importance of flexibility cognitively in your worldview of being able to take in new information and decide how it will affect how you perceive another person or situation and being open to the possibility of there being additional explanations, right? Of Chrissy, instead of being a bad person who's consumed with her body image, being a person who was, you know, emotionally abused by her parents, right? Of Fred, not just being a person who has killed someone else, but a person who is struggling with substance use. Of Max being a a child who had a very difficult relationship with her brother because of how her parents felt, failed, failed her, and it is no fault of her own that they were unable to reconcile, right? There's no room for that in Vecna's worldview. There's just these people did a bad things so they are bad regardless of what came before. And I think as people who live very complex lives, it would behoove us to be a little more cognitively flexible and a little more I'm not saying your morals have to be flexible, but just of like understanding what influences your morality. And that maybe your morality doesn't apply to other people. And this is where I'm going to repeat my abortionist healthcare claim. (laughs) You can't apply your morality about abortion to people that don't subscribe to your morality. You have to leave space for there to be flexibility and an understanding that they have a different idea than you. But I digress. Since I just talked about Max in the context of Vecna... I figured I would add a little bit more on that I saw in her storyline this season. Real quick, if you haven't seen or don't remember, Max is a young girl who was introduced in season two and kind of joins the boys' group and is one of Eleven's first, like, female friends. And she has an older brother, Billy, who's, like, such a piece of trash. Like, he, he's the worst. And in season three, he became, like, infected or controlled by the upside down and did a lot of very evil things until the very end of season three where he sacrificed himself um so that max and 11 i believe it was max 11 essentially so that everyone else didn't die he sacrifices himself um so when we get to season four max is still very much dealing with the fact that she had a difficult relationship with billy and she there's a little part of her that is glad he's dead because he was so horrible Um, But there's a part of her that is, like, very upset and is figuring out how to grieve. And I thought that, first of all, the actress who plays Max did a fantastic job in season four. Like, she absolutely killed it. And I thought that it was a really good portrayal of someone who is in grief for a difficult other, right? A difficult relationship. I'm sure most of you listening can relate to this, whether it was a parent, a sibling, a grandparent, like there's probably someone in your life that passed away and you had a difficult relationship with them. Maybe you weren't on speaking terms when they died. Um, maybe you had had a falling out before they passed away. S- something or a, just a, a long history of like tumultuous, tumultuous relationships. I think in real people, right, not just in Max, after we experience a death, we really try to make sense of our world and who we are when we're in grief and we maybe pull away from existing relationships we pull away from activities we used to like to do we are trying to make sense of the world regardless of how we felt about the person we lost we may experience like quote unquote symptoms of grief right that can look a lot like depression right we feel sad it's hard to get motivated uh hard to feel pleasure hard to feel connected. We, we socially isolate. We can experience those with whether we're grieving a person we cared about or not, or a person we had a difficult relationship with. But I think the tricky thing is for people who are grieving someone who is difficult to love is that we're not only balancing the grief symptoms or the, the experience of being bereaved, but we are also battling a guilt against maybe feeling relief or even feeling like, fine or content with the person's death like relief of not having to deal with them or of our grief not looking like other people's because other people are grieving someone that they loved and we're grieving someone we had difficulty with and I've seen this in clinical settings I've seen this in like personal settings it, it's hard to grieve someone that you had a difficult relationship with because it's hard to have an accurate remembrance of them there is a pull to like idealize the person after they've died of to only highlight the good things that they've done or the good things that they've said. And this often becomes a trope in television shows or movies where at a eulogy, even though this person was like hated by everyone, all the characters, the eulogy is like nice, right? It's nice and and loving. And so there's that pull to idealize them to just be like, well, maybe the stuff they did to me wasn't that bad or maybe the difficulties we had weren't that intense. And they were a good person all along and I want to remember them as a good person. And I think that's perfectly normal. And I think for some people that's what healthy coping looks like is I just need to remember the good parts about this person and move on. I think there's also a pull to completely devalue someone and just to be like they were the worst. They never did anything right. Their memory will always be bad. That may be true, particularly for like someone that you had a very long history with and and you find it hard to remember any time that they did anything good but i think that often falling into the devaluation is hard on us as the survivor right it's hard on us to remember a bad person or or bad things that a person did because with that comes well then why did i stick around why did i keep this person in my life for so long very similar to You know, people trying to get out of abusive relationships, right? There must be something wrong with me that I stayed or was connected to this person for so long. I think that devaluation, although can sometimes be what we need in the moment to like psychologically separate ourselves from bad memories to just be like, that was a bad person. Everything they did was bad. I think in the long run kind of boomerangs back to us and can hurt us more so than maybe idealization. And although I'm not recommending either, I think the, the, the synthesis, right, the kind of the middle path of how can I accurately remember this person? They did bad things and they had a connection to me for whatever reason. Trying to balance those things is like the smoothest pass, path to healing with the least amount of like backsplash on yourself. And I think Remax, she didn't get to do that because of like how Vecna was torturing her. She was trying to present to the world this idea of like she really thought that she and Billy could get along, that she is grieving her brother and her brother deep down inside was a good person because of the sacrifice he made, but privately was experiencing it as Billy was a piece of trash. and He sucked. And she hated him. How can these things both be be true at the same time? And there was no space for her to work through that as she was being like hunted essentially by Vecna. What I would say to Max, if if she was real and sitting in front of me, is that you're not a bad person for struggling with that, for grieving someone that you hated. And that was so horrible to you. It's not your fault. It doesn't make you a bad person to have difficulty with that. And that there are a lot of people who do have difficulty with that. It's just. Not something we talk about because as a culture, we're very bad about talking about death in general, let alone the hard parts of death and grieving where you're grieving a difficult person. That's what I would say to Max. And what I would wish for her was like the ability to synthesize all of that and to be able to say like, yeah, Billy sucked. He was a bad brother. He had a hard life as well. And he made an incredible sacrifice that I will always remember him for. Both of those things can be true and each reaction right of like anger or sadness or even like happy memories all of those emotions can exist at the same time but max didn't get to do that work because she got essentially almost killed like spoiler alert she's in a coma at the end of season five very 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 hard to watch i love max she's one of my favorite characters and her relationship with 11 is very very sweet i i you know love female friendships think that they're the lifeblood of America <laughs> and uh, Max and Eleven's friendship was very sweet but Max really went through it in season four. Speaking of Max and Eleven's friendship let's talk about Eleven and what she goes through with Papa or Dr. Brenner. There's absolutely nothing worse than them referring to that man as Papa for the entire season. He's it's well I mean I guess the entire series because he although the actor is only in season one and four Brenner is a big character uh, throughout the series and Eleven, and a lot of other people refer to him as Papa, and it's absolutely horrifying. <laughs> I, I hate it, and I, I wanted to stop. I thought this was a good time to talk about trauma bonding, because I think what Eleven and Dr. Brenner have is pretty close to what we would call a trauma bond. Now, I had cited that article by um, Kasasa, Knight, and Mengo, which is about trauma bonding, and that is that article was more specifically about uh, survivors of sex trafficking, And like the the their abusers. Eleven was not sex trafficked by Dr. Brenner, um, but I would say she was trafficked, she was kidnapped, she was tortured by him, and so there is, I think, this like element of trauma bonding. And the fact that she continues to call him Papa, even though he like essentially ruined her life and like separated her from her mother, I think that her still referring to him as papa is very big example of this. So what is trauma bonding? Trauma bonding is when an emotional attachment is formed between a victim and a an abuser. So any victim abuser relationship, there is a like a it's like a it's not an emotional attachment. And then like you're angry, like an emotional like connection, like they feel close to or loved by their abuser. This is super closely related to like Stockholm syndrome. Like if you're thinking like Patty Hearst and her joining her little community that kidnapped her. Um, very, very similar in that the, the this bond develops between the victim and the abuser. This most typically develops in long-term abusive situations. And I think 11, 11 situation qualifies for that in that she was essentially raised from an infant to the age of, well, 11 or 12 um, when she finally escaped from the lab. So there's this like length of time I think for children, it also can develop much faster because they are in that kind of like vulnerable prime time for attachment to form to an abuser. But it can occur over like, you know, several months or years in a romantic relationship as well. But it's typically like a, an abuser that you have some form of like regular contact with or regular relationship with. So why do trauma bonds develop? So one theory is the neurobiological or developmental theory of trauma bonding. And this posits that bonds are the outcomes of like an instinctive survival mechanism that is triggered by a feeling of either isolation helplessness, or kindness to the victim by the abuser. It's a a type of appeasement of the attacker. So what this means is that the bond is like subconsciously developed to keep you safe. I think in Eleven's case, it was seeing Dr. Brenner as a father figure, as fully embracing him as her father even though she knew that he was not her real father. So it's a an intense bond formed even when you have an understanding of like this is not reality. And that in Eleven's case all of these feelings are present. A feeling of isolation, right? The children are raised in this lab where they pretty much only see the like Lab techs and Dr. Brenner. They have no other connections to family, friends, school, community. No, they're completely isolated from the world. They don't even like technically exist to the government, right? Like they're off the radar. So Eleven is completely isolated. A feeling of helplessness. We see this a lot in the flashbacks that are happening in season four, where we're flashing back to essentially events that happened before season one. And Eleven is constantly failing at the experiments. So she's not doing the telekinesis right, She's not quite in control of her powers. She's also quite a bit younger than some of the other kids in the experiments that she's pitted against. And she fails because she's not as powerful as they are yet because she's just starting out. So she has this feeling of helplessness, of un- inability to like complete the task put in front of her. And parts of the experiment are that you know, no one is supposed to help her. She's supposed to figure it out on her own. So she has the feelings of helplessness. And then experiencing kindness from the abuser. I mean, Dr. Brenner encourages them to call him Papa. He treats them like they are his children, particularly when he favors them and he favored Eleven. And so in the midst of feeling completely isolated and feeling helpless and unable to perform he then comes in and is like kind to her and, you know, talks nice to her or gives her like a treat or a sticker or, you know, whatever. That is another like kind of risk factor for developing these trauma bonds. And so the brain, kind of the the survival mode of the brain kicks in and is like, hey, you got to keep this guy on your side. You got to keep this guy liking you because he's the one that's going to kill you. Like (laughs) this guy, we got to keep an eye on. So let's keep him close. So that the trauma bond develops as a way to like keep an eye on the attacker, keep them appeased so that they don't hurt you and like keep you alive, right? Essentially then the outcome of the trauma bond is that you survive by bonding to your abuser. So that's that neurobiological component. The second theory is the psychosocial theory of trauma bonding. And this is Essentially, similar to how uh, attachment theory posits that attachment develops, is well, if you take attachment and, d- and divorce it from its bio psychosocial mil- model, take out the biology part and just think about like the kind of care and, and, and attention given in the midst of the abuse is what it develops the relationship. So, if we take 11 again, in the mid- we'll call the experiments the abuse, right? Because she's being experimented on like she's a, an amoeba. She's in this like very sterile environment where she's being poked and prodded at and injected with things. Every once in a while, Dr. Brenner gives her some kindness or he takes care of her, like bandages her up after having her blood drawn. Each of those moments of kindness, which are not going to be coming at a consistent interval, they're going to be coming at random because there are times when he also like yells at her in the midst of like the horrible background of like living in a lab and then the occasional times that he yells at her sprinkled in the times that he's nice to her the contrast between when he's nice to her and when he is not becomes exaggerated so when he is he does put a band-aid on her it seems like an outrageous showing of caring because everything else the context of that behavior is in is is horrible so those those heightened experiences of caring or kindness then reinforces the relationship of like this person is going to take care of me so it's, you see it's slightly different from the neurobiome model of like the brain saying we got to keep this person close because they'll protect us and sort of in the psychosocial model of like this is the only person that cares about me because everything else around me is so horrible. Slightly different. My guess would be that probably both of these things are happening concurrently, uh, which is what attachment theory is, is that there's a, a biological and a psychosocial component happening concurrently as like the nervous system is reacting to the kindness and the and the caretaking and is soothed by that and then activated by the abuse so i think that both things are probably happening simultaneously but i thought that was uh, that 11's experience was just such a good way to talk about trauma bonding and how powerful those bonds can be and i think we really see that in season four in that when he shows up so dr brenner shows up again for the first time in season four and Eleven has a very strong reaction to him at first and is, like, refusing to go with him. And then we see her kind of slip back into the roles they've had before. And I think that she had enough distance from him for, like, three years or whatever, however long the timeline is. She had enough dif- distance from him that she was able to, that that, like, bond was it was starting to fade Um, But because there was such a strong foundation laid in childhood, the minute she sees him again, it's very activating. And when she spends enough time with him where he's showing these like little moments of kindness, it just continues to build on that reinforcement she had before, even though there was the time difference. And I, I think that's such a powerful example of you can get distance from your abuser. You can get away, get out of the relationship move you know whatever it is that that happened to get you away from your abuser and still have trouble setting boundaries with them if you encounter them again even if it's many years later because of how strong those bonds are and the like biological component that they have right like your body remembers the body holds the score so it's not a a matter of like willpower of are you strong enough to like force a break in the relationship but it is like you're battling against a lot. You're battling against your own brain and body being like, we need to do this to stay safe, even though you're trying to get away to stay safe, right? The trauma bond is a survival mechanism and survival mechanisms are very hard to overpower. They're what keep us alive, right? That's kind of our, like, lizard brain's main focus is to keep you alive, keep you breathing. So it's, it's hard to overpower those. Okay, so I realized that um, I have a lot of content already on this episode and there's still some stuff that I want to talk about about the show more broadly uh divorced from the individual characters so I'm gonna split this up into two parts and I'll put out the the second part uh, a few days from now um so stay tuned for part two of Stranger Things which is going to be uh, a bit more broad and a bit more uh, philosophical but thank you for listening all the way through to this one and I will see you in the next one Bye bye